Welcome to Millennium Live, the official podcast of the Millennium Alliance. Join us for a conversation of life, leadership, and how today's top leaders are digitally transforming the enterprise. Hi, everyone. It's Alex again with a great episode coming to you on the Millennium Live podcast series. A gentleman that I've known for a little bit of time, you may remember if you were at our event in May of 2019, our Healthcare Providers Transformation Assembly, Jay Bott, who at the time was the Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of the American Hospital Association, did our keynote address. And out of all the keynotes that we've organized for all of our events over the last seven to eight years, that keynote was one of the most we were given the most praise at Millennium. So I, I thought based on his experience, his life, his life's work, and all of the great stuff that I know he's planning on doing in the future, it'd be great to have Jay on the podcast. So Jay Bott, if you don't know Jay specifically, just to give you a little bit of background, as mentioned, he served for about four years, I believe, as the chief medical officer of the American Hospital Association. He and his team were awarded to support development of tools of patient safety and ambulatory environments, multi-sectorial collaborations, and age-friendly health systems. Most recently, Dr. Bott was the first chief health officer of the Illinois Health and Hospital Association. And there he led large improvement projects, including the Hospital Engagement Network, which were aimed at reducing readmissions and hospital-acquired conditions. Uh, he's also launched several improvement collaboratives, managed the Medical Executive Forum, led the Midwest Alliance for Patient Safety, launched the Physician Leadership Academy and designed and advanced a statewide high reliability initiative. Previously in his career, Jay was the Managing Deputy Commissioner and Chief Innovation Officer for the Chicago Department of Public Health, otherwise known as CDPH. During his tenure, he led the implementation of Healthy Chicago, the city's public health agenda and innovations in cross-sector partnerships, predictive analytics. And there's a lot that, that Dr. Bott has done. He's got a very long, impressive resume. He's not, he's a young guy too, which is one of the reasons to start this off like we do in a lot of the interviews that I conduct. I'm curious to know how kind of that all started, how before his official career started, how Dr. Bott's worldview was formed and how he got motivated to get into an industry that obviously touches everybody's lives almost on a daily basis. With no further ado, I want to officially welcome Dr. Jay Bott to the podcast today. And I wanted to say thanks, Jay, for coming. We're very excited to have you. Alex, thanks for having me. It's uh, just a, a pleasure to be in conversation with you and the Millennium Alliance community. Uh, appreciate uh, Alliance team, Katie, and others who uh, I remember from meeting so wonderfully in that uh, keynote you referenced. Uh, you know, I, I had the opportunity to engage with Millennium Alliance because of also my friendship and collaborations with Raul Dubé, one of your, your strong partners. That's right. And he and I, you know, had that conversation about sort of the future of health and the, some of the tensions and payer provider collaborations, which was was interesting. And uh, just, again, really honored that I could be there and share my thoughts with your really impressive community. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to be back here in conversation with you on this podcast. And um, so for me, I, you know, I think I was, I'm the son of two South Asian immigrants. My dad, pharmacist on the south side of Chicago for most of his life, my mom a factory worker, and um, my grandfather uh, served uh, in the Food and Drug Administration in India, one of the states there, and so I've grown up around, I think, service, uh, engagement with the underserved. I've seen frontline the challenges of vulnerable populations and how a safety net delivery environment works. My father worked in one on Chicago south side, and it's inspired me. It shaped my decisions, influenced the outcome of my life, and I think through those experiences and, and, and into college, I was seeing situations where when people of color uh, in 
challenging communities. And also, you know, people across the spectrum in rural communities are given opportunities, are empowered, are we partner with them, then their future can certainly change. And I saw that happen in Chicago in my work, and I've seen it, you know, as my work has progressed. And so that inspired me to say, I want to do two things in my life. And this was, you know, in college when I was exposed to, to experiences there, as well as with my dad, and it was doctoring underserved communities as a vehicle for social change and partnering with communities to change their future because I could see that it happened. People with chronic disease or cancer or lack of jobs, poverty that could get to a better place and also could find a doctor that they could call their own. And, you know, what also became clear is that I wanted to drive impact at scale. And so that's really been also motivating me in my work. Uh, So even though I worked locally in Chicago at the health department, a lot of what we did was cutting edge and we made it public. And so people across the country could learn from it and implement it in their own jurisdiction. So that was, you know, working locally, but impacted scale. And then I've had the the great honor and pleasure to work for um, the Illinois Hospital Association, the American Hospital Association, you know, where there's nearly 5,000 hospitals around the country where we're helping uh, support members um, deliver better, safer, smarter care and improve health and healthcare in this country. So it seems that you've obviously stayed very close to your roots in Illinois and in Chicago. Around what area or or era, I should say, were you growing up in Chicago? Around what decade? And what was the type of stuff that you, I would say, pre-entering the University of Chicago, were you seeing around the city or the parts of the city that you lived in, or maybe the the areas that you lived in specifically? I know you said your dad did some work on the the south side. What what was starting to come to mind as, you know, you kind of were a young adolescent trying to figure out what you were going to do? What were you seeing that kind of inspired you to go to go the route that you did? Thanks, Alex, for that. And I, you know, I would say that the introduction uh, was you you shared was very kind and generous. And uh, my mom would uh, you know, <laughs> right now she's smiling if she hears that. Um, and I think that South Asians also take a lot of pride in in kind of education and being sure. role models for you know their children. And so for me, it it was when I was ten. I was um, spending a lot of time with my dad and his pharmacies. So he you know worked retail, worked hospital worked also as had his own pharmacy where you know it was a it was like the United Nations in that in in that small five-room clinic where you had people from all different backgrounds working together to improve the health of a community and and I thought that struck me you know around not too far from Comiskey Park where the Sox play mm-hmm. those communities were once uh, extending all the way down you know, to the edge of the south side of the city where we would travel after work and deliver medications to people, have conversations, you know, and see them vulnerable. Um, They couldn't come to the clinic because they didn't have bus fare or there were five other things that were more of a priority than their health, uh, whether it was food on the table, their children's school, mental health challenges, lack of jobs, anything and and everything that could have impacted their life that took them away from health uh, and that prioritizing that could have sort of happened. And I, and I saw that um, family challenges, losing loved ones. But then there was also people that would walk outside their door and it would be so cold that the asthma would flare out and, and they couldn't move and couldn't get to the clinic. And so for a lot of those situations, we went to people's homes and saw, you know, I remember walking up the stairs of a, a half boarded apartment building on the south side and and with my dad and as you walk up each of those stairs it creaks and i'm like uh, i may just fall through i mean also the conditions were challenging in some of these places and and you see how vulnerable and how challenged people's lives are in it and it really just i think struck me and 
I felt like my dad was Superman running around the city with a cape, you know, helping these people. And I, there were times where I'd say, I just want to go home. And mom's like, got great, you know, food. I want to go. Like I got sure. this to do, want to hang out with my friends. So I think early on that really left an imprint. And then as I spent more time with him in these communities and then with others, and I volunteered at Oak Forest Hospital when I was in high school and, and got exposure I learned a lot just by kind of observation is that I think the notion that our healthcare system was failing our people that needed it the most. And so when we think about accessible, affordable, high quality, equitable healthcare in this country, that was not the reality for, I think, where we want to be. If We spend so much on healthcare in this country, but there's a mismatch, more medical spending than social spending. If you look at all the developed countries in the world and the data and where we stand on the WHO rankings, we're in the 40s in terms of health. We should be much higher than that given the amount of money we're spending on healthcare. And so if you look at the developed countries, they have a flip on their spending. It's around social uh, and services and communities is more than direct medical care. And we know now through more and more evidence, and it's become mainstream that the social needs, economic challenges, environmental influences, essentially your zip code has more an impact on your health than your genetic code. Do you think that's because other countries are prioritizing preventive care at a much higher level than the United States is? You know, I think it's not as simple as that. I think it's part of the story. It's part of the idea that you've got to help people be educated, supported, and make the easy thing the right the right thing the easy thing to do. And so spending certainly and incentives around prevention are stronger. It's also they're thinking about what are the wraparound needs people might have. And some of the dollars that are spent on that will go to whether it's transportation, housing, food insecurity, you know, those issues that make it hard to live, have you live a healthy life or jobs. And we know that on average, if you have unstable housing, your life expectancy is about 27 years less than someone that does have stable housing. Housing is health, right? And so if we're not going to help think about that in some communities and and address it, then you're going to have higher utilization of the healthcare system and more costly utilization of it. So I think it's also an orientation and mentality at, you know, in certain, certain countries around health and this notion, I think a crux of health as a human right or health as a commodity, you know, I think we made the decision that it's a commodity, whereas other countries have really moved towards the spectrum of health as a human right. And I think we're hearing president Biden actually uh, in his address recently articulated that, that, that I think you know we got to move to health as a human right, and and that's you know I think some of the effort that was done in the Obama administration and has been done in other attempts in other presidents' administrations to try to think about how do we get people coverage, but then once you have coverage, help them understand how to use that coverage. Do you think that part of the reason or a reason we may also be behind other countries in regards to I guess the healthiness of our citizens? Is have a lot to do with the flaws in the system in general? Because the, re- the reason I ask that is because I've spoken to so many great people inside the healthcare sector on this podcast. And it seems to me the sense I get that there's a lot of good work going on all across the country in different pockets of different cities and different states. But there's a lot of people in this country that look at healthcare as a, as a commodity. They don't feel that healthcare is a natural right or should be a right for everybody, regardless of who they are, where they're from, or what their situation is. I can imagine in a position with someone who has a career like yours already, that that must be frustrating 
when, you know, there are obvious things that are coming out from the data and from what we see on a day-to-day basis that show what we need to do in all different areas, whether they're directly health-related or not directly health-related that impact everybody's lives. I can imagine it must be frustrating when a lot of what probably needs to be done is so obvious, but there's just, there's just a lot of resistance in this country when it comes to change. And when it comes to people feeling like there's too much control, I guess, over their everyday lives, I mean, how do you square that? How do you square with that when you're trying to do so much good for so many? I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily neither or a proposition. I, I mean, I think what I've seen are examples where we've actually done really well and gotten to improving the lives that are people that are that are vulnerable. I, I mean, I think about my current work uh, as chief clinical product officer of the medical home network and more care, you know, which is a Medicaid ACO and uh, and more care being the uh, Medicare Advantage Health Plan focus specifically on a population of special needs there. You know, the, the Medicaid ACO has given back nearly 80 million in four years of shared savings back to the provider community because we've reorganized care so that it's meeting people where they're at. It's using care management and community health workers. It's helping people move to the next progress point they have. And and it's realizing that like in my own clinic where I see patients during the week, it's hard for people sometimes to get there. It's not the easiest thing. Maybe they have to take time off work or find someone to take care of the kids and be in a waiting room. And, and I still am faxing sign-offs on physical therapy and wow. medications. I mean, that's just so digitally, you know, we're behind. And I think this notion of there are examples and, and lights of, of opportunity and and success that we can lift up and we just got to scale, but people have got to say, we're going to commit to that and put resources behind it and do it. And we're seeing health systems and hospitals also have really interesting and unique models to care for populations. And I think you've got to say, what's the right clinical model for people in this country? And it's not one size fits all. And then say, well, what is then the payment models that support that? And I think that's part of what, you know, CMMI uh, is is driving forward, and I think it's a real inflection point for where the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation are going is going to go. Where you're consolidating models uh, that are being tried in the in the in the market, and then you're thinking about new kind of partnerships. Equity is becoming central. You're saying, well, all right, what does the care need to be, and how do we we pay for? It? And so, even there's a lot of discussion about virtual and digital health that could work for some populations and for others who may not have broadband or don't know how to don't have digital literacy, some of the safety net populations that and people who are older or younger that haven't gone through the amount of training or school, we've got to figure out like, how do we help them use those tools? So there's no shortage of, of obstacles to your point. But I also would say that there's a lot of examples to look to and scale that deliver, you know, accessible, affordable, high quality equitable care. I'm not 100%, but uh, get get pretty far down, you know, the road to uh, doing that. And we're seeing, you know, New York Health and Hospitals and others around the country doing some really interesting things to help these populations. Do you think as long as private insurance companies remain such a big part or a major part of providing healthcare to 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 Americans, do you think ultimately we can achieve the big goals that we want that, that, that like you and a lot of the people that are trying to do so much, so much good in the industry, as long as the private insurance companies are so heavily involved, is that possible? Or are we never going to get everything that we, that we need, or we never get to where I guess our fullest potential is when healthcare in this country is, is so profit driven. 
You know, I think that there's an important role in place for commercial health plans. Uh, you know, they they also work on Medicare Advantage, which I think is going to continue to grow, you know, to help older adults and duals that are struggling and need services. And I think you're seeing more of them think about, well, what does a health equity agenda mean in our organization and for the members we care for? Uh, and what are the partnerships that we need? Uh, so I think COVID-19 has certainly illuminated inequities, but also illuminated opportunities where stakeholder alignment is so critical to progress and how public health and health care delivery and payers and bi the business community can work together, you know, to solve and go up, solve issues and challenges and go upstream to help think about, all right, what are the obstacles these certain populations may have to getting to having good care? What's the care model? You know, how do we pay for it? I mean, I think you have kind of the ingredients there and, and you've seen a, a number of commercial insurers kind of invest in these, whether it's uh, the bold healthy goals from Humana and their health equity agenda or United's work or CVS Aetna's work or Anthem's work, Caremore and um, others in North Carolina. There's certainly examples where people are trying to figure out how to do the right thing. And it's a matter of continuing to incentivize that, lift that up. And for you know the federal government and state governments to say, here's what it looks like to have the kind of care we really think the public should get. And, and here's how we organize it. And here's how we pay for it. But I, I think that as long as healthcare has profit intertwined within it, it'll be harder to get to that place of the best we can do for this country. I, I, I fundamentally believe we should give every American health coverage and find ways to do it and then support them in learning how to use that coverage and access care, you know, appropriately and help them you know, continue to make uh, healthy decisions and, and make the right thing to do, the easy thing to do. And part of this is about leadership, right? Like I, I think physician leadership and you're seeing more physicians become CEOs. I think interprofessional team leadership. So clinicians, we know, you know, it takes an interprofessional team to make this work, to get better outcomes, to spend less money, to organize care appropriately. I mean, before there was a construct of, of physicians kind of being the go-to and the only clinical voice and that's exercising leadership. But, and, and I think that it's important. Physicians are critically important in that and kind of setting a tone and agenda and, and modeling interprofessional teaming. I think that that's important. So we say also, what is reimagining the experience for patients and families, but also reimagining what the experience is for caregivers who are clinicians and teams who are burnt out because our system doesn't work to support them to be engaged in care at the highest levels of their training, but makes it harder for them as clinicians to deliver care. So I think that's, you know, I think the HR, I think, you know, other system uh, fragmentation, system issues, I think make it really hard sometimes to just take care of people. Yeah. And a lot of our listeners may not know this, but one of the reasons I, I, I'm enjoying talking, not just specific healthcare, traditional topics with you, I like to talk about policies because you got your MPA in health policy from Harvard. So what's so interesting to me about your career is, is that you've been on the ground, you've been inside the hospitals, you've been dealing with patients, you've been talking to doctors, and then you've also, you know, gone through included in your education and work that you've done in healthcare around policy, which, you know, makes you, makes you rare in this day and age where a lot of the people that we talk to, you know, they're usually they're kind of focused on, you know, kind of one part of the industry, but you seem to have gotten around, around all of it, which, um, 
which is which is great because it gives you a particular viewpoint that not a lot of people are able to have. I'm curious with all the talk about healthcare from the federal government's perspective, with some of the things that are being talked about right now in regards to making the Affordable Care Act stronger. I know there's a talk of a I saw the other day there's some senators that want to start building up momentum to finally bring out a public option from from the federal government. I was curious from your perspective with all the things that are floating around D.C. from a day to day basis. Is there anything specific that you have heard that you're like, you know what, that would be something really good to do because that would make things at least the work that you're trying to do a lot easier and a lot better? Is there stuff that's being talked about right now from a policy perspective that you're hoping comes to fruition? Yeah, I think that that's really important to reflect on it. You know, the Affordable Care Act was a huge step forward in getting to a better place in terms of healthcare delivery for this country that gets us to better health for our people and as a nation. But it wasn't perfect. There was more sure. work that needed to be done. Um, and I think you know it spurred experiments that we're learning a ton from over the last 10 years. And, and we're learning what may work, what may not work. Um, and those experiences and the views from healthcare delivery and and businesses, public health, and community-based organizations so important. There is something that really happened that's, I think, significant recently, and that was the American Rescue Plan. And what the American Rescue Plan, um, people may not realize, is it had impacts on healthcare. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it, one, eliminated the income cap for financial help on the health insurance marketplace and lowers monthly premiums for many consumers over the next two years, which makes healthcare more affordable. Uh, for people. And under the new law, if you receive unemployment benefits or enrolled in COBRA coverage, you can get 100% subsidized health insurance. 12 states are encouraged to expand Medicaid by increased federal funding. They may get increasing tax credits that lower what you pay for health insurance through the exchanges created by the Affordable Care Act, grants to support rural health care providers to address mental health care, incentives for states to expand Medicaid, money to support, uh, you know, all sorts of COVID-19 testing, care, vaccinations, and and really supporting community organizations, and then strengthening public health infrastructure for state and local governments. So I think, you know, there was so much that happened that is important. So for example, if you had a 64-year-old just earning above the income cap, you know, uh, of the federal poverty level, they can't get subsidies, you know, and they might pay a premium of nearly 25% of their income after this plan, this individual is eligible for a yearly premium tax that significantly cuts what they pay each month, and that can make them have the ability to get healthcare coverage. So, you know, there and for people that don't make, you know, that are 150% of the poverty line, which is you know almost 40,000 for a family of four, now qualify for higher subsidies, and they have option for 100% subsidized plan on the exchange. So, there's a lot of interesting things there. There's also um, money that was put in for surveillance or a next generation surveillance system for communicable disease and pandemics. And, and I think that's strong, you know, so it was smart to use, you know, this as an opportunity to bolster healthcare based on what we learned from the last year. Yeah. I didn't, I knew a lot in that bill had gone to healthcare, but I didn't know a lot of, of the specifics. I knew a lot of it had to do with trying to make in this, in that bill, the affordable care act, you know, stronger and better and, and more available. You mentioned something, you know, earlier in our discussion that made me think that, you know, policy is great, but if people don't know and the messaging isn't right, where they can get access and what's affordable for them and where they can get the right care, then, you know, a lot of that work, not that it's for nothing, but, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't help as many people as it possibly can. In your, I guess, in your particular role now or in, in your in your experience, how much of the work that you do revolves around messaging and, and just kind of getting people in the know about what their options are? 
one to your point about policy and, and communicating it and translating it, that's so important. But it's also important that policy reflects the reality of what's happening on the ground. There's often times where policies are created and legislated because of a misinformed issue or an experience that maybe is not generalizable, uh, recognizing that experience is important to that individual. I think so. I think we just have to be very thoughtful as we think about, you know, what is the change we want to make? And then, okay, what's the policy? And then how do we implement this policy? And is it going to, does it make sense on implementation? Is it going to create more burden? You know, all sets of questions. Does it have unintended consequences for, or for, you know, growing inequity or other unintended consequences? You know, like some of the value-based care programs that we learned over the, over the last 10 years actually widen the gap on inequities rather than actually closing the gap. Why was that, do you think? Uh, you look at the, uh, the example on uh, hip and knees, you know, part of it, it's the way that it works is a bundle over a period of days that goes through the whole kind of episode cycle of primary care, pre-op, op, post-op, and rehab. And if people, particularly people that are vulnerable, underserved, uh, of color, don't have the right supports or needs, and you know, they taken care of at home, then they're less likely to go home. We know that uh, there's inequities around who is able to go home and get the support they need versus who is not. And so they end up in, in a post-acute rehab facility where they may not get, you know, equitable care. There's a lot of variation in care in those post-acute facilities. And so, you know, we think about how do we make that better? You know, we saw what, what was happening in nursing homes and long-term care through the pandemic. So that's one example. There are other things where it wasn't intentional, but you know, as you implement, you learn and then see, you know, what might happen. So I, I think I'm learning a lot on the ground taking care of patients. You know, I think it's a, it's a real good framework for what happened. I get a lot of my ideas from clinic, from taking care of patients on Chicago South side. And, and, and it helps me think about what do we need to do to make the, the system better and particularly for, for vulnerable people as well. And, you know, people may not have even the resources that they need at home, but what I would say that it's also learning from, you know, operationally thinking about regulatory compliance and other issues as part of a Medicaid ACO or Medicare Advantage health plan in a county jurisdiction. You know, there's a lot that you learn about from uh, implementation, experiencing care, way that the system doesn't work. I mean, sometimes, you know, there is one patient to care of who had, prior to me getting to know her, 10 visits to the ER in a year. Was she, was she covered she by insurance? Not- uh, yeah, so she had coverage, chronic conditions, um, but she would just go back to the uh, ER. But then, you know, I have this idea, this notion that we send people back to the conditions that, that make them sick. In a fee-for-service model, you're incentivized not to actually think about, okay, well, what's going on upstream? Why is this woman coming so often, right? You just take care of that person in the moment, get them the care they need, or and if they need to be admitted, they are admitted, or if you're discharged, they're discharged. But for admission, there's a high threshold. So in a value-based care kind of ACO construct, we could say, hey, uh, let's go see her at the home or in a Medicare Advantage kind of construct, let's go see her at the home. And what we found was she had also difficulty with vision. She couldn't actually navigate her place. There was clutter. Um, Her fridge wasn't working. She had stairs and not of a ramp. So she had to wait for someone to help her get out of the house to get to clinic appointments or the hospital, you know, that's why you had to call the ambulance. So there's all these things you don't learn about. No. And so we said, okay, well, what is that? What do we got to do? We put in a ramp, 
fix her refrigerator, get her glasses, get her a health community health worker and coach, help her, you know, voice activation so that she can use voice to actually ask questions and get answers and then talk to her family that where she can get help. And then as a result, she had in the next year, only one ER visit. That is the kind of thing, you know, where we need to think about how we organize care and pay for. And that's why value-based care in done right can, can really be great for delivering the, the kind of care we need. And, um, you know, I think we're seeing that as some in the work I'm doing with more care on the Medicare Advantage special needs plan side, and certainly with the uh, medical home network uh, in the MHN, but we're seeing this around the country. And I saw it, you know, when working with hospitals and health systems, you know, in my role at AHA. In regards to the pandemic and I guess the, the more attention telehealth has gotten, do, do you think that because people getting used to not leaving their homes and doing everything online and having Zoom calls with doctors and things like that in the pandemic, do you think that's going to be something that's going to continue? Or do you think as we continue to get out of the pandemic, more people get vaccinated, people are still going to want to go in to see doctors or what's the best thing for the for the industry? I think it's probably going to be, you know, a hybrid and mix of things. There's certain things I say uh, after a virtual visit to my patients, look, um, I got to see you in the office, you know, or I got to see you at home. I've been doing even homebound vaccinations over the last several months. And there's a lot of people that can't actually make it to the clinic. And so virtual and meeting them at home can work really well. But the other is there's a role for virtual health, which includes remote patient monitoring, telehealth, other digital capabilities. And I think digital is really important. We've got to help our patients understand how to use it. Uh, effectively, it's a new muscle as well, and you got to start, you know, helping folks use that. The I think it's going to be also helpful to to help people understand how to use virtual health effectively, and and there are going to be times where I think people need to come in. And part of the reason, particularly in vulnerable communities, people come in is because they they feel more comfortable in person. They feel more more the trust. Trust is really important, and so. Building trust is hard sometimes to do virtually, but you can do it, I think, in person in, in a stronger way. And you need to do that sometimes, but also just because people feel isolated or have mental health challenges and they need to uh, have a conversation, need to be seen. So, you know, I think we're going to see the changes we uh, and acceleration of telehealth and virtual health, I think, continue and new ways to use it. And I think it's, it's going to make care more accessible for certain populations and and hopefully for all over time. But I think we have to just be, I think, as care teams, thoughtful about how we use it, when we use it. And sometimes you know, the idea is you might put into play a virtual technology, but don't necessarily know on the care delivery side how to use it or the data that comes from it very well. So think about you know re- remote patient data that might come in. All right, we've got to have a workflow for that, and you've got to provide support and helping people, you know, use that that data and then change how we care for patients and help provide them information. But I don't want to go back to what the world was like before in terms of virtual and digital health. I mean, I like where we're going, and I think there's more to do. And um, you know, you've got to meet people where they're at, and it's not one size fits all, and it depends on what various communities and, and practices and healthcare delivery organizations are doing. Um, we're seeing it in public health as well where digital and virtual can play a really important role from exposure notification to contact tracing mm-hmm. uh, to chronic disease surveillance um, and these ADT feeds, the admission discharge transfer feeds, um, you know, that can be really helpful. I think we've got to get to even closer to real-time data as close as we can rather than waiting several months for a claim and then, you know, using that information. I'm curious, Dr. Bott, the pandemic showed a lot of weaknesses in the American healthcare system. 
And things that I think about is, well, what happens if another pandemic comes, which would obviously be frightening, but let's say it's even scarier than than the coronavirus. What do you think as a country we need to be doing to make sure that when and if the next pandemic comes, regardless if it's more severe or less severe than what we've been dealing with over the last year or so, what can we learn from this pandemic and the holes in the system that we should make sure that regardless of when or if something else happens in response to a virus as contagious as the coronavirus, like what should we be doing now and for, I guess, the foreseeable future to make sure that the impact isn't as intense as, as what we just experienced? So one, I think that you know, one of my, my mentors uh, talked about leadership as accepting uh, responsibility for enabling uh, shared purpose in the face of uncertainty. I think we've got to get better you know, at being able to um, work with uncertainty and, and always be prepared for the unexpected. You saw some folks really good at that and through the course of pandemic, and you saw folks struggle. So how can we close the, the gap there? We've learned also that it's hard to put the genie back once you open the bottle. And I think there are people that are liking the way we're, we're delivering care, people that are liking the way we receive care. And I think it's pushing people to think you know, beyond. So I think how we uh, drive technology forward and use it in, in both data and as well as virtual care. The other is you know, healthcare is highly sensitive to disruption when there are changes to supply. We saw, saw that with personal protective equipment, ventilators, other elective procedures. So, you know, how do we solve for that issue as well? And then I think infrastructure and workforce was really impacted and do more with limited time and resources. And so how do we help our healthcare teams work smarter as we move forward? The other is public health infrastructure and also infrastructure in our nursing homes and long-term care. We've got to reform and redesign that. I think that that's really important as well as stakeholder engagement and partnerships you know, that um, we need to drive forward in a new model uh, and then this new era. And then I would say mental health. You know, I think that'll be important to drive forward. And we've seen interesting new partnerships develop as a result of COVID between unlikely partners and some between likely partners that are important to learn from and scale. And then, you know, the last thing I'll say, and I think really important is health equity. And there's a, a whole series of lessons around health equity. And I think that equity needs to be a guiding principle in our policy work and our systems work and our work that we do to change environments uh, and certainly our public health work, but also how America's economic engine and businesses are thinking about that future. You know, how are they thinking about health and for their employees, for those that they serve, but also how are they thinking about equity and uh, reducing inequities uh, through their work? As I mentioned at the start of this, you've got a long list of things that you've done already in your life. Before we wrap up, I'm, I want to know where your head is at for what you're looking to accomplish in the future. I'm sure you've got some things on on the on your checklist that you want to you want to achieve. Because I think a lot of people again that that are in our network remember you for the work that you did at the American Hospital Association. I just wanted you, if you can, just kind of elaborate on the mission of the AHA, what your role was there, and some of the important things that you you got accomplished while you were the CMO. Yeah, it was about a little over three and a half years uh, that I was there, and it was just an incredible opportunity. I'm, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity uh, to work uh, with so many dedicated hospitals and health systems and with the in the field, um, with the team at the AHA, and certainly the partners and collaborators and, and policymakers uh, that we worked with over the years, as well as our state hospital associations who were so critical 
to work with in um, all the, the areas that we engage in. And certainly uh, right before I left for uh, several months on the COVID pandemic, uh, where I think DHA played, played an important role. The vision is one that I certainly can sign up for. And that's why I went there, um, is a, a society of healthy communities where all individuals reach their highest potential for health. And the mission to advance the health of individuals and communities the AHA leads, represents, and serves hospitals, health systems, and other related organizations that are accountable to the community and committed to health improvement. And so the, the opportunity uh, to drive impact at scale, certainly an opportunity that I cherish and, and honor and was one uh, that's been critical uh, to, my, to my growth. And the key areas I, that I worked on, one you alluded to earlier, uh, is driving uh, safer, better, smarter care. And that was through quality safety, population health initiatives. One, the Hospital Improvement Innovation Network, uh, where it's uh, nearly 1,700 hospitals across 34 states. The age-friendly health system, you know, to reimagine what we can do to support people with healthy aging and how our healthcare delivery system improves care to that population. And and even though we say age-friendly health system and that focus of older adults, it's actually better care for everyone when we organize it around this notion of the four M's, uh, which was mentation, mobility, medication management, and what matters to you. Uh, and so that's easier to kind of comprehend and translate and put into action. So that bundle, the four M's, deployed reliably can make an improvement in outcomes and lower costs. And really give credit to the, the vision of Terry Fulmer and the John A. Hartford Foundation, who led this work uh, with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and the Catholic uh, Healthcare Association, who uh, we got to collaborate with and have had uh, significant collaborators throughout. And then the work with the Institute for Diversity and Health Equity uh, was really critically important in trying to make uh, lift all boats and, and help support the field with tools, resources, and guidance around uh, driving a, a health equity agenda, a diversity and inclusion agenda that, uh, that leads us to health equity. Um, and we worked with the National Urban League and Unidos US uh, and to do some of that work as well as health insurers and uh, community-based organizations. And then you know, more and more physicians are being employed by hospitals and health systems. More physicians are leading organizations. Physician Alliance, where we try to bring resources and tools together for people there at the American Hospital Association for our members. Uh, that Physician Alliance moniker was lead well, be well, and care well. And so that was critically important uh, in helping, you know, physicians see the American Hospital Association as one of their homes, uh, you know, as they so we could align administrative leadership with clinical leadership towards uh, better health in this country. So it was, uh, it was wonderful to, to do that and, and certainly uh, have been grateful to take lessons from that to the work uh, that I've done over the last year, which was helping Illinois uh, with this COVID-19 response, particularly in long-term care nursing homes, uh, helping report on COVID news and, and other health news for ABC News, and then um, also working and taking care of patients in a community health center uh, and taking care of patients as they transitioned between care settings, as well as now working um, to help design care models for the underserved and for the vulnerable of the medical home network. That's awesome. All really good stuff. Um, and I, I wanted you to touch upon, Dr. Bot, what, what you're doing right now at Medical Home Network. Could you talk a little bit about the organization, what you're specifically doing, and more so what, what enticed you to take this role? Medical Home Network and More Care, I serve as a chief clinical product officer and medical director, and I'm, I'm grateful to spend some of my week there, uh, as well as uh, a couple of days a week caring for patients. And um, there are two parts to the role. One is you know, helping uh, enhance and optimize our um, 
care coordination, care management, care delivery model uh, for the Medicaid population. Uh, and so providing insight into our uh, work with our federally qualified community health centers with Cook County Health System, with uh, several other safety net hospitals and, and Rush, our academic system, and designing new tools, new approaches, scaling them, and also using technology to better enable insights uh, for our care managers and care coordination teams uh, to work with our delivery organizations uh, in the community. And then, um, you know, it's, it's thinking about from going from a fragmented system to a digitally interconnected, meet you where you're at system for better outcomes and lower cost. And, and we focus a lot on the issues of equity, and which is, I think it aligned with my values and, and mission. And so that's one of the reasons I went there. And it's also a great team that's really committed and mission driven. And on more care, you know, given that I'm a geriatrician, I also think that we need to reform and redesign care we deliver to older adults and in various settings, whether it be long-term care, nursing home, supportive living, senior living, assisted living. And so more care is really fundamentally rethinking that uh, model and it's uh, aligning the various stakeholders in that ecosystem to say we can do better by coming together to offer a care model that's value-based and that helps people get the care they need, uh, maintain their their health at the optimal level of function for them, reduce avoidable ED visits, admissions and readmissions, decrease redundancy and confusion of medical care for those vulnerable population, increase evidence-based care delivery, improve communication between st- stakeholders. And like, for example, we do an interdisciplinary team meeting you know, every morning uh, for our patients that are undergoing uh, changing condition or transitions in care. And, uh, and then we have a conversation uh, with the member and the family to the extent possible and ensure care plans consistent with their goals, their why, and what matters to them. Uh, and that's what I think really drives uh, this and our partners. And so we've, uh, in early models with our institutional equivalent special needs plan, and we've reduced uh, uh, hospitalization by 77%, you know, and so we're, you know, clear that the model can work and, and we just need to work to grow it and scale it. And so I'm working with community health centers on this model as well to help them think about a Medicare strategy and, and growing and enhancing that strategy. Very cool. Before we wrap, Dr. Bott, I, um, first of all, thanks so much for spending time and talking to us. Just so much good stuff that you've done and that you're continuing to do. I guess to put a button on this interview, over the next few years, I can imagine you're thinking about things that you personally would like to accomplish as it obviously relates to a lot of the work that you've already you've already done over the course of your life and, and your career. I was just curious from a personal perspective, what you're thinking about in terms of objectives over the next few years is something that, or, or maybe more than one thing that you're, that you're kind of hoping to accomplish or something that you're hoping to be working on kind of in the, in the, in the near and foreseeable future. Thanks Alex for that. I, I think for me, the thing I want to continue to do is drive forward reimagining health and healthcare for our nation's most vulnerable. I would also say I'd want to drive impact at scale. So I want to be in in circumstances and doing work drives impact at scale towards an affordable, accessible, high quality, equitable healthcare delivery system. And and also I think I want to continue to grow. I think the impact and the work around health equity, uh, which I think is a, a critical issue. Uh, I say this issue that you know for America, health inequities is its chronic condition. Uh, so that we've continually put band aids. On these issues and we've got to go upstream and kind of redesign we're seeing some of this stuff happen now and it's really exciting and i would say you know the final thing is a continued dancing uh, my patients call me the dancing doctor <laughs> so as a kid i was always interested in dance dance thanks to my family and 
uh, but didn't realize that it not only would save my career as a doctor um, in residency, but in, in medical school, but it also um, helped me um, meet patients where they're at and move their them to a place where they could actually engage with my me and each other. And it was sort of become a, a tool in my health toolbox. Uh, so I would dance at my patient's bedside, pulling grins and laughs from them. <laughs> and, um, you know, it wasn't something that I initially saw as something that could be uh, part of my my role as a doctor, but it just really became real, um, something that is important to for me, uh, both in the community with my patients and for a while taught um, a dance class. And I think it creates a kind of this community and energy of people who connect in the class and, and make sure. decisions about their health. And so I think, you know, being an agent for change and doing it at scale uh, is really what drives me and, and challenging kind of the status quo. Well, your community is lucky to have you, but that's for sure. That actually would be a pretty good social media handle, The Dancing Doctor, if you ever wanted to. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you have an Instagram. I kind of, yeah, I kind of have that on Twitter. It's called at Pungra J. Pungra is a North Indian folk dance. Okay. Uh, from the from the state of Punjab, which is a northern state in India. I use that handle uh, with this sort of exact kind of thing in mind, Alex. Uh, but, uh, you know, Pungra is not uh, known to. Yeah. So we may need, we may need yeah. to open one up the dancing, <laughs> the dancing doctor. What do you do? What do you do in, do you get quiet time? Are you, I mean, I, do, what do you do when I guess you're not focused on, on work related type things? Like what do you do in, I guess, in your personal life in, you know, with family and, and just to kind of maybe take, take mental breaks from some of the stuff that you do on the ground day to day. I think that's really important. I think we've got to find space for, for that because it, it, I think renews us and gives us energy. And so for me, it's, um, I think a mix of different things. I'm very close to family. And so I spend a lot of time with them and my sister and brother-in-law and, I, and, and have a, a Labrador Harley, uh, who I spend a bunch of time with and my nephew there. And, uh, <laughs> I also spend time, you know, I like exploring different communities and neighborhoods in Chicago. It's just such a rich place, um, to engage with people and learn from. And, and I like being outdoors, hiking and swimming and uh, running and biking. So I, I try to do some of that and then try to read uh, at least a book uh, a month. So I'm reading right now, Care After COVID uh, by Dr. Shantanu Nandi and uh, reading uh, Promised Land by uh, President Barack Obama. Oh, nice. I'm excited about, yeah, those both of those books. But I, uh, I try to carve out time, um, you know, on the weekend as well as in the evenings to try to you know, recenter and, uh, and dance, frankly, has been really important to me for that as well. Nice. Well, Dr. Bot, thank you so much for spending time with us today. This was a, this was a really a great interview and thank you for all the work that you're doing. And hopefully when we get back to in-person events, we can get back, get you back up on the stage, which will be a well-received keynote address with lots of people interested to learn more, but for now to, to kind of hold them over um, hopefully this podcast will help. I know a lot of the people that listen are in the healthcare space and the work that you're doing and that you have done and your ideas on, on where the industry needs to go is stuff that I know will, um, will definitely resonate with a lot of people and, and, and put some good ideas, uh, in their heads. So, um, thanks. Thanks so much. We, we really appreciate it. And, um, we, we hope to see you soon. Thanks, Alex. Really appreciate this conversation with you. And I'll, I'll just leave the audience with this as well, is that this is our shot, which is a vaccinations campaign I've been working on. Hashtag this is our shot. That is another piece of work that I'm going to continue to hit the pavement on trying to get, you know, our last mile and, and people that aren't vaccinated, vaccinated. It's been particularly in our underserved and vulnerable communities. And um, I look forward to sharing some of the lessons from that and other work, uh, 
you know, when we can uh, the next time, but just grateful for the work of the Millennium Alliance for this conversation with you, Alex, and, and for the opportunity to continue um, you know, to work together to, to envision a better future. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to the Millennium Live podcast. New episodes every Monday. If you have interest in participating in a discussion like this one, feel free to reach out to us. Email info at mill-all.com.